In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Little introductory sentence there. Daniel chapter 7 is perhaps the most significant chapter of the book of Daniel. Theologically, this chapter contributes more to our understanding of not just eschatology, but also soteriology and Christology, which are the study of salvation and the study of Jesus and Jesus Christ, uh, that this is one of the must-know passages of your Bible. And it's giving us a prophetic picture of the end of the world. Micah asked me this week, what are you talking about on Sunday, Dad? And I said, the end of the world. <laughs> As a Daniel had a vision of four different monsters. And Micah goes, will you teach it to me first? And so we were at the ball field and I was reading Daniel chapter 7 and running through it. And he thought it was pretty cool. So do I. And I'm sure a lot of you do as well. So before we dive right into that, let's look as we should at the background and the structure of the passage we're looking at. Because chapter 7 is the beginning and the end of two very important structural markers of the book of Daniel. The first one is the, the broad overview of the book of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel are largely narrative. They're stories. Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. The dream of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's been chapter 1 through 6, although there have been some visions and some prophecies in there. They're they're put in the context of narrative. And then chapter 7 through 12 is prophecy. These are dreams and visions of Daniel. And this is what's sometimes called the apocalyptic section of Daniel. And we'll talk a little bit today about what that means uh, for something to be considered apocalyptic. But this is the end of the first half of Daniel and the beginning of the second half. The other structural marker here, from chapter 2 verse 4 through chapter 7 verse 28... That is written in Aramaic. The rest of the Old Testament, with some other parts of Ezra and, and some other parts, are written in Hebrew. This section is written in Aramaic, which was the, the lingua franca of the day. It was the language that everybody spoke in the court and in the, the, the world around them. And from chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28, this is structured into a chiasm, which we've talked about that before. It's, it's an inverted parallel is what it technically means. And it focuses on the nations, or we might call it, to use the New Testament term, the Gentiles. The goyim is, is the Aramaic and Hebrew term. And the rest of the book is in Hebrew, and, and that largely concerns the Jews, the nation of Israel. So chapter 2, verse 4 through seven twenty-eight, it's a chiasm, and this is going to be relevant for our study today. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are both visions of four kingdoms that are parallel to each other. That's chapter 2, chapter 7, working our way inward. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 are both stories of deliverance from death. So you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6. Then chapters 4 and 5 are both stories of a pagan king being humbled by God. In chapter 4, you had Nebuchadnezzar when he thought he was a cow for seven years. And in chapter 5, you have Belshazzar who praised the gods of gold and silver and then lost his kingdom in the same night. So you have this Aramaic section concerning the fate of the nations around the world. It's structured as, as a discrete unit of the book of Daniel, and that will be relevant for how we interpret some of our, our passages today. So you've got these two structural markers of which chapter 7 is, both, is either the beginning or the end. And it tells us in verse 1, this was given in the first year of Belshazzar. You, all, you will notice, chronologically, we are going backwards in time 
in the book of Daniel. Belshazzar, remember, died in chapter 5, and King Darius took over, and then we had Darius in chapter 6. Now we're going back to the first year of King Belshazzar. We know historically this was circa 553 B.C., so if you're taking notes, this vision was given around 553 B.C. It goes in between Daniel chapter 4 and 5. So if you want to write that in the margins of your notes, that's when Daniel had this vision. Daniel is in his 50s at this point. And this time, so up till now, Daniel has been interpreting signs and dreams and visions for the kings. Now he is given dreams and visions of his own. In fact, he has been receiving them, but we haven't had them written down yet. And he writes them down. It says he told the sum of the matter to the end of the book of of Daniel through chapter 12. We're going to be seeing the visions and the dreams that Daniel had. And this is where we launch into the end time study of Daniel. We're talking about the end times, talking about the last days. The word is eschatology, which eschatos is a Greek word that means last or final. So eschatology is the study of last things, the study of the end times. And this is either very exciting for you, and this is what you've been looking forward to, and I said Daniel, and this is what got you excited because you knew we were going to do prophecy, or this is intimidating or even exasperating for you. Oh, no, not one of these I've sat through these before, and it ends up being much less about the Bible and much more about what's happening in in Washington, D.C., and what does this have to do with Jesus, and can't we just just agree that these things are too difficult to understand? Why do we got to talk about it? Well, I want to say at the beginning, first of all, addressing what I just said, we at Calvary Chapel are not prophetic agnostics. By that I mean, we do not believe that the the prophecies of Scripture are so opaque that we cannot know what they mean. And this is a rising trend, and it's it's in Christian academia, but it's more, I think, a response to the fact that Uh, that kind of teaching through Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind books and that sorts of thing was in the front of the church for a very long time. And some people said some very unfortunate things and some folks got embarrassed, so they'd rather kind of move away from it. So what they say is, why does it matter? Just as long as we know that Jesus wins, isn't that the most important thing? Well, it is the most important thing, but that's not all that we have. We believe these things were revealed for us to understand, not in their entirety. Solomon makes that clear in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we cannot know everything God has done from the beginning to the end, but God's given us an awful lot. And I think you will see today, when you study these words carefully, the symbols are not as opaque as people like to make them out to be. Oh, they're just so crazy, so weird. Who can ever know what it means? Well, when you slow down and take the time, you realize this is actually not, I won't say easy, but in many cases, uh, rather clear what he's talking about. And because of that, this will also keep us under control. I am not a fan of so-called prophetic sensationalism, where we're trying to find new secret codes that nobody knew about. And we're going to talk about UFOs for some reason when we're talking about the book of Daniel, or going to be going around identifying who the Antichrist is or setting dates for the rapture. That will not happen here. It should not happen anywhere. And I am not going to be teaching this as a commentary on our own days. We're going to be reading this as it is a prophecy for the end of days. And we are going to do our best to stay firmly anchored and shackled to the scriptures. 
when we go through this. There are places where I believe it is appropriate for us to use our sanctified imaginations to say this might be that or it could be this. But I will be very careful to couch all of that language in could be, might be, perhaps type language. There's some things we know for sure. There's a lot of things we don't. And I want to make sure that I can keep those things distinct. So if you're concerned that we're just going to go nuts and I'm going to fly off half cocked, it's not going to happen. And if you are hoping that I will do that, you are also going to be disappointed. But I will say, while this is some of the most exciting to stu- study, stuff to study in the Bible, these are going to be dense messages for a while. And if you read this, these are dense passages. It's going to be very didactic, meaning it's going to be a lot of instruction and not quite as much application as maybe you are used to, especially coming out of like Daniel chapter 6, right? That's very application heavy. Well, now we're going to get some good meat and potatoes. And part of the reason it is so difficult is because we have to accommodate all the relevant scriptures in these studies. You can't just say, well, this is what Daniel says, and then pretend the rest of the Bible doesn't exist. Some people try to do that. They try to take each piece on its own and say, well, see, it doesn't even tell us. But if you compare it to this and to this, then it actually kind of does tell us. So we're going to be having a lot of scripture references. They're going to be on the screen. And as we get into our message for today, Daniel 7 is one of, if not the most important passages, certainly like top two or three, concerning the man the Bible knows as the Antichrist. So if this is your first week, you sure picked a doozy of a week to show up to Calvary Chapel Trustville. There was a, there was a thing for a while, every time my in-laws, my mother and father-in-law would visit, I was always talking about like hell, the Antichrist, judgment, and they're like, are you trying to tell us something? And I'm not, it's just verse by verse. And as we go through this, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about the Antichrist. You will not hear maybe as much speculation as you might be used to, certainly not of his identity, because I don't know, and neither do you, and neither does that blog you found. But we will try to lay down the big blocks and the obvious biblical truths about these things. And some of you might need to be corrected in realizing you actually can know more about this than you have been led to believe. And we may investigate some biblical options, although I don't know if that's going to be today's emphasis so much. The devotional lesson for this passage, though, is clear. The piece for you to take home and to hold on to this week, and really the true star of this story, is not the Antichrist. It's the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus wins. Jesus' kingdom will last forever. But what this passage gives us is a lot of details of what will happen just before that. So we're going to do this quickly. We're going to go through the actual vision itself rather fast. Then when we get to the explanation part, we'll slow down and we're going to go into detail. So Daniel had a vision, verse 2, and we'll go down to verse 8. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night... And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Very visual, so get this picture in your mind. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is the definitive example of the biblical genre known as the apocalyptic genre. This is a subset of the prophetic genre, although if you read Isaiah, Isaiah is very clear in a lot of the things he says. This is highly symbolic. It's highly angelic. There's going to be a lot of angelic figures in it. It's very eschatological, meaning concerning the end of the world. And it very much of the intertestamental other apocalypses that came about that are not in your scriptures were written in deliberate imitation of Daniel, especially Daniel 7. So what do we have here? We have four beasts, four monsters. You remember structurally this is parallel to the statue that we saw in Daniel chapter 2, where you had the golden head, the silver chest and arms, the bronze abdomen, the iron legs and the feet of iron and clay. And we believe that these are referring to the same things. Joseph told Pharaoh in Genesis 41, 32, that when God gives the same dream twice, it's because he wants you to know it's definitely going to happen. That's why Pharaoh, in his vision of the seven years of famine that were coming, he had the vision of the cows that got eaten and then the seven stalks. So some people, I don't know why they would say this, but they'll say the, the fact that this is in here twice is clear that it, it really didn't happen because nobody dreams the same thing twice. Well, unless God is involved, in which case that is exactly what happens. Well, you've got the great sea here, and I don't want to press this too far, but in the Bible, the sea is an image of, of chaos, of life apart from God. Isaiah uses it as an image of the nations of the world. And you have the four winds, the wind blowing over these waters. And I can't help but be reminded of Genesis 1-2, when it said the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And spirit and wind are the same word in Hebrew. And of course, this is Aramaic, but it's still the similar idea. We have these four beasts, which we'll get to in a minute. And more attention is given to the fourth one. And most of this prophecy is about him. Ten horns three of which get uprooted by the growth of an 11th horn, which is a little one, but it grows to be bigger than the others. And it is also anthropomorphized. It has eyes, it has a mouth, and it speaks. So this is the first part of the vision. Verse nine is the second bit. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast, this would be the fourth one, was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, that would be the lion, the bear, and the leopard, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the scene develops here. We have these four beasts, especially this fourth one, 
And this little horn that grows to be a big horn, speaking great things. And then then it says, thrones were placed in verse 9. If you have an old King James Version, you may have that it says, thrones were cast down. This is the Aramaic word, ramah. And it does mean to cast down, but don't think of this as in thrones being destroyed. Think of it like you're going to set up chairs. You're setting them down. That's what that word means. So we're casting them down as in we are setting up thrones. A court is convening here. And this, the judge in this case is the Ancient of Days. This is a reference to God. I, what a cool name of God, isn't it? The Ancient of Days, meaning this is referring to God's eternal nature, God's aseity, meaning he exists on his own. Nobody created God. God has always existed. And he's pictured as a man with white robes and white hair, his hair like wool. And so that that clean white picture is a, is a picture of purity and holiness because, I mean, it was very rare at this time and even up until recent times for a garment to be so clean and so washed that it would be, actually be the, the color white. And also by having the old hair, the, the white hair, this is a picture of, of age. Ancient of days is associated with that. So some people who say the Bible never talks about God as, a, as an old man with a big white beard. Well, here you go, the ancient of days. And it says his throne moves in fire, and there's fire proceeding from it. And notice it mentions the wheels of his throne, the fire, the fire of his wheels. If you've read the book of Ezekiel, you're familiar with this picture. Ezekiel 1, he said he saw the throne of God moving. It was like a sapphire crystal ice plane, and above it was God's throne, and beneath it were the wheels within wheels and the four living creatures, and that's how God's throne moved about. So Daniel is seeing the same picture here. One of the reasons we know that these people are all seeing the same thing is because they see the same stuff, and they describe it similarly but not precisely the same, which is what you would expect if you had different eyewitnesses that all saw the same thing. They'll have similar testimony, but not identical testimony. Ezekiel gives us the most details, but Daniel is seeing the same thing, that the throne of God has wheels of fire. It says thousands upon thousands attend him. Revelation 5.11 says the same thing about the throne room of God. Specifically, it describes them as angels, myriads upon myriads of angels. And also there is a reference to the court convening, books opened in judgment. You know this if you know your Bible. When you get to heaven, you only want one book opened for you, <laughs> the book of life. If books are opened, Revelation 20, 12 talks about this, books refer to the works that you have committed. And that is not what you want evaluated when you stand before God. And as this is happening, the little horn, which became the big horn, is speaking these blasphemies. And we see the fourth beast destroyed with fire. Verse 12 tells us that the other beasts lost their dominion, but they were not utterly destroyed. That will be very interesting to discuss later on. But verse 13 and 14, very, very important section of your Bible right here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Underline that, will you? With the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Verse 13 is the most quoted verse of Daniel in the New Testament. 
the Son of Man, who comes on the clouds and receives a new kingdom composed of all peoples, all nations, all languages that will never, ever end. And this is how the vision of the statue ended as well. The rock that was not cut with human hands, that crushed the feet of iron and clay, the rock became a mountain that covered the whole world. That's the kingdom of God that will last forever and ever. So here's our picture. We have four different monsters that come out of the sea. The last one is terrible. It has these horns, and especially this one little horn that uproots three of the others and begins to speak great words. The court of heaven is in session. They judge this fourth beast who is consumed with fire. And then the Son of Man comes on the clouds and receives an everlasting kingdom. Some of this is probably pretty clear to you what it refers to. Daniel is actually going to give us more detail. So this is the image. Now we're going to get into the explanation. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me, as they might. I approached one of those who stood there, this would probably be an angel, and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. So much for agnostic prophetic study, huh? These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That is a pretty tight summary of what we just saw. Daniel's concerned, what is this? So he addresses an angel asking for help. This is a common motif in the Bible. Zechariah does this frequently. John does this frequently where they ask the angels. If God reveals something to you, you don't know what it means, ask. He'll tell you. And he says, these four beasts are four kings, and the saints shall receive the kingdom. Now, there are some who want to pause right there and say, that's all we need to know. That's enough. The saints will receive the kingdom of heaven. Every kingdom that rises up against God shall be destroyed and call it a day. But I think that that is, that is I'll say this kindly and charitably, that shows a lack of diligence in Bible study. You can be lazy because the way that the book is structured and the way that these things are explained here and elsewhere lead us to some pretty definite conclusions about what these kingdoms are. So let's, let's break this down. First of all, we have the winged lion. It's a lion with wings of an eagle. The wings are removed. He stands up on his feet and is given the mind of a man. This is parallel from chapter 2 with the head of gold. This represents the king or the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel straight up said it in chapter 2, verse 38. He said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. So therefore, this image would be Babylon. And also, this is Babylonian imagery. It was very well known that Babylon used a lion with wings as the symbol of its own nation. The Ishtar Gate, which are, there's a piece of that on our slides every week, had images of winged lions. So they would have known this is Babylon. And the removal of the wings and standing up and having a mind of a man is descriptive of what happened in Daniel chapter 4. When Nebuchadnezzar was first humbled and that the wings were plucked off, right? And he walked around the ground like a, like a beast. But then he was given his mind back and he praised the name of the Lord. So this is a picture of the transformation that happened in Babylon, specifically with Nebuchadnezzar. So first of all, the winged lion is Babylon. After that, we have a lopsided bear, we have a bear that was raised up on one side. This is parallel to the silver chest and arms from chapter 2. 
This is the Medo-Persian Empire, sometimes just called the Persian Empire. Now, the, the more liberal and secular take on this passage is that the, the bear represents media alone and that the leopard represents Persia. And the reason they have to say that is they can't believe that Daniel was prophesying anything. So the only thing that was around at that time, they believe, was Greece. So they have to make the fourth one Greece. But that is not what we think. This is very clearly in the passage, Medo-Persia. Because we've talked about this, the Persian Empire was actually a combination of the Median Empire and the Persian Empire. But it was lopsided because the Persians had ascendancy over the Medes. And this is actually how, in the next chapter, Daniel is going to see a vision of the Persian Empire described as a ram with two horns, but one horn was larger than the other. And that's very plainly the Persian Empire, because the Persian had authority over the Medes. So this is who this is. And they devoured, as a devour much flesh. The Persians had an empire that was from the gates of Macedonia to almost to India, to the Indus River. It was enormous. And these three ribs in its mouth are at the very least symbolic of other nations that they had chewed up. There are some who say that there were three great victories that the Persians won over Egypt, over Babylon, and over Lydia, which is a kingdom up in, the, in Asia Minor. But um, there's a lot of disagreement on that, so I don't know if that is so certain of what those ribs represent, other than the fact that they're chewing up the other nations. So you got a lopsided bear. Number three, you have the four-headed leopard with four wings. This is parallel to the bronze abdomen from before. This is Greece, the Hellenistic kingdom. Leopards in the Bible and in ancient society were representative of speed. And you add wings, a leopard with wings is going to be incredibly fast, right? Which is, which is good because the Greek empire conquered the world incredibly fast. Alexander the Great conquered not only Persia, but beyond Persia, all the way to India and up into Europe in less than 10 years. By the time he was 30, he had conquered the whole world. It was fast. That's why they call him Alexander the Great. He was never defeated in battle and is still today considered one of the greatest generals who ever lived. At the death of Alexander the Great, his kingdom was divided into four pieces. So hence we have four heads and we have four wings. And in chapter 8, verse 8, it's going to describe, first of all, Greece is described as a goat with one horn. And then it says the horn is going to be broken into four pieces. So this image of four very much ties into what would happen to Greece. That's who we have here. Now the fourth one, the fourth beast, it doesn't say what kind of monster it was. I actually saw somebody draw this as a uh, dinosaur one time, which I thought was pretty clever. But it doesn't say. It just said that it was terrifying. And this is parallel to the iron legs and extending down as well to the iron and clay feet of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. This is the Antichrist's kingdom. Now, Daniel chapter 7 does not describe which kingdom would be the Antichrist. It's not going to identify it. We discussed this with some detail in Daniel chapter 2. There are other passages relevant to this that we're not going to look at today. But just to summarize and state it for you, 
This is a revived empire of some kind. We know this because it goes from iron legs to iron and clay feet. We also know from uh, Revelation 13 that this empire comes out of a previous empire. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that the people who destroyed the temple will be the people that head up the Antichrist's kingdom. There are another number of reasons we believe that. And I think our two best options are either a revived Roman empire, and that's almost everybody who thinks that, but I do think it is very interesting to consider that this might be a revived Islamic empire, a revived Islamic caliphate. I'm not going to get into the reasons for that today. Go back and listen to our study in Daniel chapter 2. Um, it's very interesting that those two camps, those who uh, believe in a revived Roman empire, say that those who believe in Islamic antichrist, that they are just preaching the headlines. They're not preaching the scripture and then they don't answer the scriptures. And then those that hold to an Islamic empire believe that those who believe in a Roman empire, they're just Western-centric people. They just believe that it's gotta be their people or not at all. And so I don't think either of those accusations is charitable or Christian. Let's just look at what the text has to say, all right? So this is a revived empire. Note that this beast has 10 horns, just as the feet of iron and clay had obviously, without specifying, 10 toes, that number 10 is relevant to this final empire. It does not mention that there's a mixture here, so it does not talk so much about that revived nature, but that's what we know from other parts of scripture. So you got these four monsters, a winged lion, a lopsided bear, a four-headed leopard, and a fourth one. And the angel doesn't give a whole lot of detail to Daniel at first. He just simply says, these are four kingdoms, and the last one is gonna be beaten by the Son of Man who will establish an everlasting kingdom. The kingdom is given by the Ancient of Days to the Son of Man. Now you know that phrase, the Son of Man, don't you? This is a messianic figure in the book of Daniel. And this is not just Christians coming back and saying, we believe this was the Messiah. This was and remains the belief even of Jewish non-Christian scholars. In the intertestamental period, the Son of Man was constantly referred to as the coming Messiah, the Son of David, the Root of Jesse, the Seed of Woman, right, that will come, the prophet like Moses, that all of these are the same guy, the Son of Man. So here comes Jesus in the Gospels, and Jesus refers to himself as what most of the time? The Son of Man. Do you hear how edgy this is now? Because it's one of those things that like, you might want to get on Jesus about it, but you're like, well, I mean, we're all son of man, technically, right? We're all the sons of Adam. That's actually where C.S. Lewis gets the son of Adam thing in Narnia, by the way, is the son of man. Man is the word Adam in Hebrew. So, but it's also got this, this double edge. It's got this deeper meaning that this is a messianic figure. And Jesus was always talking about himself this way. And the the ultimate time he said this is in Mark 14. This is when Jesus is on trial in the high priest's house, which was illegal. You weren't supposed to do that in the middle of the night. But the high priest asked him, point blank in Mark chapter 14, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus referring to? Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. He's basically saying, that verse is about me. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. 
Jesus, claiming to be the Son of Man, for these people was a blasphemous statement. Blasphemous is a very strong word. Why? Because you see, the Son of Man is a divine figure in this passage. You have the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a, a very clear ancient Near Eastern picture of a God, or in our case, the God. So in this passage, you have a picture of the triune Godhead in the Old Testament. You have the Ancient of Days, who's giving authority to the Son of Man. But the Son of Man also comes upon the clouds. And he also will receive authority and all will serve and bow and worship him. So you're seeing plurality, multiplicity within the Godhead, even in the Old Testament. And the Son of Man, who is our Lord Jesus, will give the kingdom to the saints. That phrase saints in the Bible has three different references. It can refer to the Jews as the saints. That's the most common one. It can refer to Christians. And that's kind of tagging along to the first one that we have been granted. Paul says in Ephesians that the Gentiles have been granted to have an inheritance with all the saints. And the third one, it can even refer to the angels. But I think what we're seeing here, all of God's people are going to inherit the kingdom and rule with him. Notice that. They're not just living in the kingdom. They are ruling in the kingdom. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. Revelation 20 verse 6 says that the the, uh, the Saints were given authority to judge over the world, to rule and reign with Christ. So, what do we have here? In just this short little section, before the final kingdom comes, I'm going to try to give some of these summary statements if this is new to you and you're having trouble tracking with me, all right? Before the kingdom of God comes, there will be one final terrible empire that will be destroyed. Revelation 19 talks about Jesus coming back to destroy this final empire. So that's one of the big blocks of prophecy, that there will be one terrible, tyrannical, oppressive empire that Jesus will destroy to set up his own kingdom. Jesus' return is also a conquest. And there are lots of other details to learn, but you can at least get that. There will be a final terrible empire that Jesus will conquer and then set up his kingdom. And that's what this passage is mostly about. Now, if you have any questions about that fourth empire, this final kingdom that will be on the earth before Jesus comes, Daniel had questions too. And so in verse 19, he says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze. That's a new detail, the claws of bronze. And which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So he said, look, okay, I get that. Jesus wins. I get that bit. But can you tell me anything more about this fourth kingdom? Thus the angel said in verse 23, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. That's the little horn. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. 
He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Okay, so now we're given details. Details, and this is good. The Bible gives us prophetic details. It's not bad to look at these. He's talking about this fourth beast kingdom, and he says, tell me more about this, and the angel explains. And Daniel actually, in his question, gives other details that were not in the the initial image, that it had claws of bronze, for example, and that this horn oppressed the saints until judgment came. So quite plainly, let's let's get the real basic, basic stuff here, and then we'll add details as we go. He explains this as a fourth kingdom. So you have Babylon, Persia and Greece. Another one's coming, the angel says, that will wreak terrible havoc. The second point is that it will devour, trample, and break the whole earth. So this is not just another empire. This is not just another king. This is going to be a terrible, oppressive, violent fourth kingdom. And by saying the whole earth, by the way, it is very likely, and this is the majority opinion, that this is a worldwide kingdom. It's not just one kingdom in one part of the world. Revelation 13.3 says that all nations and tongues and languages shall bow before this king. I will just say in passing, this is not the day to get into this, I do think it is possible that it is not a global kingdom in the sense we talk about it, but it is so enormous and so influential that its, it's, its ripples are felt all over the world. I think you can read it that way, but uh, the most common way is that this is a global kingdom. And in fact, in the days in which we live, that seems eminently possible, does it? doesn't it? With airplanes and internet and radio, you can do that. Okay, then you have 10 horns. Revelation 13 verse 1, which is the other chapter that you need to know about the Antichrist. Daniel 7, Revelation 13. Revelation 13 also describes his last kingdom as having 10 horns. A horn is a very common picture in the Bible of a king. And this is what he says. These 10 horns represent 10 kings that are reigning at the same time because when one of them arises, he puts down three. So what you have here is a coalition kingdom. You have a coalition of 10, and there's some who want to say 10 is a symbolic number. Well, it could be, but it says 10, so I'm going to stick with 10. That there will be this kingdom that arises, this terrible, tyrannical, worldwide kingdom, will have a coalition leadership of 10 kings until an 11th king arises, asserts authority over the rest of them, and actually puts down three of these kings. So this is a king over the other kings. A dictator will arise over this coalition leadership in this kind of the way that violent kingdoms go. It doesn't matter if Rome is a republic or if France is trying to be a republic. Napoleon is going to arise. Caesar Augustus is going to arise. And this is what will happen in this case too. So you've got a coalition kingdom consolidated under a dictator who's going to execute some of his rivals. This is something that I think, by the way, a lot of images of the last kingdom miss, is they make it seem like this is just this harmonious kingdom that arises and what can people do? It's so unified and it's so together. The Bible describes what is the Antichrist kingdom as turbulent. 
That there's just, there's rulers falling and rising and there's civil war and he's fighting against. So that's part of it. And the fifth thing here is a blasphemous persecutor. So this is not just a kingdom that's not going to conquer the whole world and be terrible and violent. It's not just a coalition leadership that gives rise to a single dictator. It is a religiously oppressive and blasphemous empire. It says he will seek to change the times and the law. And uh, that is a rather ambiguous statement. We're not quite sure exactly what he means by that. The law, we immediately think of the law of Moses, right? And we do know that this this kingdom is going to put a stop to the worship of the Lord in the temple. Uh, Changing the times. This has been a theme throughout the book of Daniel, that the Lord is the only one who can change the times. So this could just be a picture of arrogance. There are some who have taken that little half of a phrase and tried to oppose all sorts of strange things. So let me just warn you about that. There are people that were opposed to the metric system because of this verse. You're changing the times and you're changing the law. There are people that uh, have been opposed to amendments to the Constitution because of this law. There have been some people, people love to point out that Constantine was the Antichrist because Constantine changed the law. Well, no, he can't be because the Antichrist persecuted the church and Constantine very famously put a stop to the persecution of the church. So we were not quite sure what that means, although I think when the day comes, it will be rather evident. The point is that the Antichrist, this kingdom, is going to establish their rule, his law, and no other way. I've already kind of tipped the, tipped the scales here, spilled the beans. This little horn, so you got the big empire, are you with me on that? The little horn that arises in biblical terminology and in prophetic study is called the Antichrist. That's a phrase everybody knows, whether or not you've read it in the Bible or not. If you have a bad kid, you say, man, this kid's the Antichrist. <laughs> if you haven't thought that, you're not a parent, okay? Just come on. You've never just like wondered, I would just wonder what this kid... But this is a, a name, in fact, the Antichrist, this is a name that John uses in his epistles. The other writers don't actually use this. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, the man of rebellion. He's called here, right, the little horn. He's called the prince who is to come. Revelation calls him the beast with a capital B because John will have similar visions. Uh, but this is the, the image we use, and I think it's a good term to describe this figure. So within this big empire, this dictator that is going to arise is called the Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, John said, children, it is the last hour. So you think you're living in the last days. John said you're living in the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So many Antichrists One, capital A, Antichrist. John says, that last guy is coming, but there are going to be a lot of guys that come before him that are an awful lot like him in the way they live, although they are not him. 1 John 4, verse 3 said, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The spirit of the Antichrist. So, Not confessing that Jesus is from God. That's one of the marks of the Antichrist, is that Jesus Christ was not from God. Which is why we have no no patience and no time with other religions or other sects within the church that want to make Jesus to be something other than that divine Son of Man who has come from the Father. Okay, so let's get a little another sum up here. In the last days, the end of the world, remember, a terrible kingdom empire will rise up It'll be the reviving of a previous empire, as we talked about before. It will have a ten-kingdom, ten-king alliance. 
That will be weak. It'll be fractious is what Daniel 2 taught us. But that will be broken by the rising up of a blasphemous tyrant that we call the Antichrist. And 725 tells us not just that he's coming. So we've got the empire. We've got the guy that springs up within the empire. We've even got the time of his rule. Do you see that in verse 25? For a time, times, and half a time. A time in Aramaic is a reference to a year. And we know this as, because we will see this later on. But three and a half years, that's how long this Antichrist is going to be ruling. Time and times and half a time. We know that this is three and a half years because in chapter 9, verse 27, it's going to tell us that the Antichrist will rule for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Revelation 11 and Revelation 12 both say that the Antichrist will have authority for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. So much for the Bible not being specific. Three and a half years. Okay, now maybe you're hearing this and you're going, wait a minute, I thought the Great Tribulation, the last days, was seven years. You're right. But now let's look at this. Daniel 9 verse 27 tells us that the last the, the, the span of this kingdom is going to last for seven years, okay? One week, it's called. One period of seven. Revelation 11, verse 3, and chapter 12, verse 6, both also confirm that this will be seven years. But for three and a half of that, you have this Antichrist ruling and reigning. Now, there are those that want to say, so we won't even know who the Antichrist is until halfway through those seven years. Well, I don't think so. Because in Revelation chapter 6, when John, or when Jesus rather, opens up the scroll and we see the first thing that happens, it is a man on a white horse with a bow conquering and going out to conquer. That is a picture of the Antichrist. And in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, it tells us that he will be the one who establishes a covenant of peace with Israel for seven years. So what we have here, and I, I hope you're kind of tracking with me here, you've got this coalition of 10 kings of this final empire, but it seems like you've got the military leader, the figurehead leader of this kingdom is this guy we call the Antichrist. He's going to be the one that, that establishes this coalition kingdom that makes peace with the nation of Israel. He's going to be the one conquering the world, going out and, and doing all the dirty work for these ten kings. But it seems that halfway through those seven years, this guy is going to say, enough with you ten people ruling. <laughs> it's my turn. And it says he will put down three horns or three other kings. Revelation 13 mentions that there will be a mortal wound that the beast endures and seems to be healed from it. So it's going to be a fake resurrection. The Antichrist is a fake Jesus from the devil who is a fake ancient of days. And it says that the world will be shocked and amazed. Who is like this guy? Who can fight against this guy? He even can be healed from these terrible wounds. And it says they will all go after him. So it seems that at that point, that halfway point, something's going to happen with this figurehead, this general, this conqueror, who is going to decide, my turn. Enough with this ten kingdom thing. I'm the guy. And there's going to be some resistance from some of these ten kings. And he's going to crush them. Remember, he's a conqueror. He's a warrior. He's a general. And it is at this halfway point, it says that the saints will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. The blasphemy and the persecution will begin in earnest by his hand halfway through what is commonly called the tribulation week, the seven years. 
Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, which is the other chapter you need to know about the Antichrist. Daniel 7, Revelation 3, 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, that day will not come, meaning the day of the Lord, the end of the world, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Same guy, the son of destruction, read this now, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is what Daniel will call later the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus warned us about this in Matthew 24, 15. He said, if you are alive when this happens, run for your life. Don't even go down into the house to grab something. Get out and pray that you're not pregnant at that time because you're going to need to be running as fast as you can when this happens. Because at halfway through this point, the, the empire has arisen seven years, but halfway through those seven years, Antichrist establishes himself, not just as king, but as God over the whole world. You will worship me and only me. It's like the ultimate version of Darius's foolish decree that he made in chapter six. Worship will be permitted towards him alone. And this in Revelation 13 is where you get the mark of the beast. Halfway through the tribulation, he's going to say, not only do you have to worship me, you have to be marked on your hand or your forehead. We do not know what this is, but you will not be allowed to engage in commerce without it. Don't, and I like to say this because this is so foolish, but you are not going to accidentally take the mark of the beast, brothers and sisters. If people say things like, don't vaccinate your children, you might accidentally take the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is very clearly and explicitly tied to the worship of the image of the beast. And it's idolatry. It's not, see, well, you know, shopping with a credit card is kind of like taking the mark. No, it's not. Because the, the punishment for this is not just exclusion. It's getting your head chopped off. It will be very obvious what this is when the day comes. And if there have not been an abomination of desolation, there is no mark of the beast. And there can be no abomination of desolation unless there is a temple for him to desecrate. So chill out. <laughs> maybe this isn't for you, but maybe you know somebody that needs to hear that. I get really upset about that because if you people, oh, people are taking the mark of the beast. That means their souls are damned to hell forever. Is that really what you think? Well, no, but I don't like that policy decision. Then say that. Don't say the Antichrist thing, okay? All right. And this will all be enforced, Revelation 13 tells us, by another figure who's called the false prophet. So that, we'll talk about him another time. But So worship for the Antichrist alone, enforced under pain of death. And notice, the saints shall be given into his hand. Revelation 13, 7 says the beast, the Antichrist, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Every tribe and people and language and nation. So this is not, well, we're going to have a secret underground movement to stop him. No, 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 no. There's no escaping this. The, the, the Bible talks about if God didn't shorten those days, everybody on earth would be dead. It's that terrible. It's only going to be three and a half years of this. And it's going to be so terrible that Jesus is going to have to come back. 
But that is one of the functions of the tribulation, and we'll talk about this in Daniel chapter 9, is that God is going to be waking up his people, the nation of Israel. Think to yourself, what would it take for the Jews of today to abandon the traditions of their fathers and call out to Jesus Christ as their Messiah to save them? It would take something like this, which is why God is going to permit this to happen. This is one reason, I'm not going to get off on this, this is one reason among many why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And yet it is told that in the, in the tribulation time, the Antichrist will prevail against the saints. And there are some that are not as convinced by that as I am, but I think that's pretty cut and dry. And that's not the lesson for today. This chapter really has nothing to say about the rapture, but it's all part of it. So let's keep moving. Let's summarize where we've gone so far. And I hope these summaries, although they're repetitive, I hope they're helping you. Okay? In the last days, the end of time, there will be a terrible empire that will rise up and conquer the world. All your globalist fears will be realized. By whom? We don't know. But it's going to happen. It'll be the revival of an old kingdom under a ten-king coalition. After three and a half years of strife, warfare, famine, the Bible says God himself will be sending plagues upon the earth. After three and a half years of that, a figurehead conqueror will go through some kind of grievous wound from which he will miraculously recover. It'll shock the world. And he will take advantage of that moment to force out three of those kings and assume dictatorial control of the last kingdom for himself. At that time, he will desecrate the temple of Israel. He will command all the world to worship him alone. Everyone will be compelled to take his mark, worship his image. Most will do it willingly. But all the Jews and all those that have come to faith in Christ Jesus during that time, all who refuse will be beheaded. And blood will run in the streets as God continues to rain down plagues and judgment upon the world for three and a half more years. That's what's going to happen. You can understand why Daniel was a little freaked out by this. But after that, we have some good news. And what's the good news? Jesus wins. Yeah, we know this, but knowing all of those details that we were just given, all of a sudden this is like, wow, this is amazing. The court shall sit in judgment while that horn is just yapping, yapping, yapping saying all kinds of blasphemous things. Heaven's court will sit down. The Ancient of Days will take his place. And it is entirely possible, based on several passages that say we will judge angels, etc., that this court does not just involve an angelic representation, but a human representation as well. And just like they said, all right, we need to judge Ahab. Who has any ideas? The Lord's going to say, does anybody else agree that it is time to judge this guy? I would imagine it will be a unanimous vote. His dominion will end. The Antichrist will be killed. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says that Jesus will kill the Antichrist by the breath of his mouth. I love that picture. I wonder what the word he will use will be. Maybe just enough or dead. I kind of like that one. Dead. We're just done. It says that the armies of the Antichrist will march against Jesus. How foolish is that? The heavens will open, Jesus will ride down, and you should know this, it's not a last battle that Jesus will fight. It's a last campaign he's going to fight. 
He's going to go from victory to victory until he's wiped out all the Antichrist enemies. And they're going to straight up line up for battle against Jesus Christ and his angelic and saintly army that came out of heaven. And it says it's going to be so incredible on that day that all of the beaten and downtrodden Jews and believers will rise up and they'll fight too. So it'll not just be Jesus, but it'll be a worldwide uprising against this guy. And it says the weakest man on that day will fight like David and the warriors of that day will fight like the sons of God. How cool is that? That's Zechariah 12 through 14 if you want to read it. Revelation 19 talks about Jesus' robe dipped in blood, which is, of course, a reference to his own blood that was shed on the cross. But if you compare that to another passage from Isaiah, it ain't his blood. It says, oh, what, what have you been doing? Have you been treading the wine press? You know what that is, right? You tread the grapes with your feet. Oh, you're covered and splattered with all that red stuff. Have you been in the wine press? He goes, oh, yeah, the wine press of the wrath of God Almighty. That's what Jesus is going to come and do. And then his kingdom will come. When Israel cries out for their Messiah, Luke 13, 35, that's what Jesus said, then the end will come. Revelation 19, 20 says, the beast, that's the Antichrist, the little horn, the beast was captured with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshiped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The first resident of hell will be the Antichrist. That's pretty amazing to consider, isn't it? So for so much, many people get like panicked and scared about the Antichrist. Yeah, he'll do terrible things, but not for long. And he's going to be the first one to test the waters, so to speak, of the lake of fire. And then Jesus will reign from Jerusalem while Satan is bound for a thousand years, the Bible tells us. And then the end of the end comes. There's one final rebellion that Satan will mount that Daniel doesn't talk about, but in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. It's going to be continuous ruling and reigning by Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, over this guy's terrible kingdom. Verse 28, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. That's the end of Daniel's first vision which alarmed Daniel, perhaps this has alarmed you too. You're like, I don't want any of that to happen. Well, neither do I. I forget the name of the, of the commentator, but one of my favorite commentators on the book of Isaiah had a, a phrase where he's talking about the, the end times, and he said, we must remember that when we pray for the return of Jesus, we are praying for the end of the world, and that will be disaster for most people. Something to remember and keep in mind. Now, there are lots of other lessons to learn. Maybe there are some details here that I didn't get into that you're familiar with and that you were wishing I would. But I think this foundation will help us as we move forward. And I really wanted to focus on what this passage talks about and how it's corroborated other parts of the Bible. I will say, just as we come to a conclusion, we believe that these events are yet future. This has not happened. And you might say, well, duh. But there are a lot of people that believe that this has already happened. They say, well, the abomination of desolation was when Antiochus Epiphanes set up an image of Zeus in the holy place. That's, it happened during the, the reign of Greece. Well, to say nothing of the fact that Greece comes before the fourth empire, Jesus said in the book of Matthew that the abomination of desolation was still future. So that means that what Antiochus did was an abomination of desolation. He was an antichrist, to use John's language, but he was not the guy. And it's almost like you think that was bad. 
There's going to be no Hanukkah story. There's going to be no revolt that pushes this guy out. It's going to take divine intervention. And there are some that say, well, look, all of this is just a very symbolic picture of Jesus dying on the cross and saving us from our sins. I do not believe that. Because number one, this is too detailed. I think people that say things like that, the revelation is just a very symbolic, heightened picture of the salvation we have in Jesus. It's too detailed for that. I think that that shows an ignorance of what he's actually saying here. What are the 10 kings? What are the three kings? What's the little horn? Who was that guy? Where is he? People will say things like, well, it doesn't matter. It kind of does because it talks about it. And number two, most of this has already been fulfilled literally. There was a literal Babylon. There was a little lopsided bear called Medo-Persia. There was a little speedy kingdom that was divided into four pieces called Greece. We believe that the literal son of man will come to destroy the literal final kingdom ruled by a literal antichrist. And it, it's important for me to mention at this time, one more time, I do believe that the church will be taken to heaven, raptured is our word, prior to this seven-year period. And part of the reason I believe that is 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us all these things that I described cannot happen until the restrainer is removed. That there's something restraining the rise of the Antichrist. Although Satan is trying his best to make this happen, something's restraining him. And I believe, and you can go look at this passage, we've studied it in depth, that the restrainer is the work of the Holy Spirit through the church, the salt and the light of the world. I do believe that that is what's going to happen. The church will be raptured first. For that reason, I find it very foolish to speculate on who may or may not be Satan's antichrist. I've said this before, and I'm, I'm literal when I say this. Every U.S. president since John Adams has been called the antichrist. So the next one will be too, whoever that may be. Just There's going to be somebody that thinks that. Although it's strange to me that it's usually pre-trib guys that do that. And we don't believe the Antichrist will be revealed until after the rapture anyhow. So that's just something to think about. However, I am humble enough to say this. Because all kinds of weird accusations come our way. I am humble enough to say this. If the day should come where a seven-year peace treaty is forged with Israel and the temple is built, we should be very suspicious and wary of that. And should we see a man stand in that temple and declare himself to be God, we were wrong and the rapture comes later. And we should flee as Jesus said. Now, I should think that would be clear, right? If it ever gets to that point, we go, well, guess we missed it. And it's time to keep going. I, I'm, I don't mind saying that. But all that said, you should be prepared to do, endure persecution at any time from anybody. Well, people say, oh, you teach pre-trib rapture. You're teaching people not to be ready to endure persecution. Yeah, we do. We just talked about that last week in Daniel chapter 6, didn't we? So I don't care if it's Antichrist with a capital A or a lowercase a. You do not give in to somebody that tells you to deny your Lord Jesus. And this also teaches us that Christians should be wary of any tyrant. doesn't matter if you like him and you like his policies. Somebody that is trying to consolidate power and conquer the world is the kind of person Christians should be watching out for. But with all that said, our obsession is not to be with the false king, the Antichrist. Our obsession is to be with the king of kings, 
the son of man, not the son of destruction. Jesus, our Lord. The ultimate truth is that Jesus wins. And you say, why is he delaying? Well, we'll give you some theological reasons in Daniel 9, but the short version is because he wants lots of people to be saved. The study of prophecy should motivate you to share the gospel with people. If it doesn't, you're missing it and you need to pray. And if you here in this room have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you are susceptible to the wiles of the fourth king who will have many forerunners, even in our time. Revelation 3, 20 through 21, we end with this. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's the invitation to you today. The one who conquers, meaning who endures through every tyrant and every empire and every persecution, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who endure to the end, man, can you imagine how, in, how Encouraging this would have been for the Jews in exile that someday all these empires are going to be crushed by our Lord and his Messiah. It's the same thing for you and me as we walk in exile today. Not only is salvation coming, but your glorification and your coronation is coming if you are in Christ Jesus.